Hello, and welcome to the Scuttlebutt Podcast. This podcast is an exploration of life and business from a veteran perspective. I'm your host, Brock Briggs, and each week I bring you a conversation with a service member or vet at the top of their craft. Today, I'm speaking with Rob Weinkoop. After his time in the Marines, Rob went on to start the first franchise of Guyreen Burger, a delivery-focused specialty burger chain started by Tom Monahan, the founder of Domino's Pizza. Rob shares what he learned from Tom and the economics of food delivery before Uber Eats existed. We also talk about government contracting, specifically service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses, and why that niche isn't as profitable and easy as most people think it is. Lastly, we talk about Worm Buckets, a worm composting e-commerce company Rob started during COVID. You can find this episode, as well as all other episodes, the video versions on YouTube, transcripts, and written content to keep learning at scuttlebuttpodcast.co. Please enjoy this episode with Rob Weinkoop. I've been going under some changes. My son just graduated high school a couple of days ago, and now I've officially become old. And is that the qualifier of what makes I you feel, old? I feel like it's got to be something like that. It's yeah. So I started to reflect. I recently I've had some transitions in my life. My grandfather passed away just a couple of weeks ago, and it's just been a tough year as far as changes. And so I think it's caused me to start to maybe reevaluate a little bit about what I've accomplished in my life and when is enough and what is my goal and a lot of different things. And yeah, I think lately I've been approaching my day and approaching how I work, thinking about that, like what is truly important in the grand scheme of things. So maybe a little too deep for this morning, but uh, no, that's uh, never not a good time to talk about that. I understand those existential type questions. And I feel like oftentimes we avoid them because they're painful and maybe scared that you're not acting in a way that is accordance with what you're actually believing or what you believe to be true at that time. You said you're questioning what you have. What kind of conclusions are you coming to? What are you saying? Oh, maybe I want to change directions on life work. It's it's become more of an acceptance of where, what have I accomplished in both my business and career and how have I done it? I've done it with what I've had at my disposal. We don't all start the same race in the same place. And I think if I look at the different things in my life, I'm starting to now feel gratitude and starting to understand, okay, this is, this has been a life worth living and really focus my endeavors on what the next chapter looks like and what I want my life to look like. Have there been any particular accomplishments or big successes in life and or work that have led you to that conclusion? I hope that's where we all end up of just like that acceptance phase, but are there anything about your history that stands out to you. Yeah, definitely. I've tried and failed a lot in business, probably more than I feel like more than the average person. I've been like a huge student of business, if you will, since I got bit by the business bug, probably almost 15 years ago or more. And as an adult, really, okay, this is what I want to do with my life kind of thing. And 
I've had so many different businesses and had minor successes and different things like that. And I've just never really had a major uh, home run of anything. And so sometimes you surround yourself with other real successful people and they're just like, oh, I'm doing 10 million, I'm doing 5 million or whatever. And you feel, oh my gosh, like, why am I even in the room with these people? Like I'm nothing. And it's really tough sometimes when you compare yourself to other people. And But then you can look, in my case, I can look at the different things that I've done and feel really good about how they turned out. Even if they didn't turn out exactly how I wanted them to turn out, you know, as I went through the process, I got a lot out of it along the way. I don't know if that answered your question. It does, directionally. You said that you got bit by the business bug 15 years ago or so. When that happened, was there some particular outcome that you were looking for? Was it time agency? Was it being a 100% owner of something? Was it like, were you looking for a, a massive exit and yeah. retire onto the end of the islands and sit pina coladas on the beach all the time? No, I think I was influenced by Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week. So the idea of time freedom and travel, I was in the military where I was very rigid. I, my time was structured. My travel, could travel at a moment's notice and stuff like that. I think I was looking for how to build my life how I wanted it to be. And and then as far as like becoming an entrepreneur or, or business, what made that really sound attractive to me is just, I grew up with it. My mom had tried some side hustles. I had an uncle that was actually pretty successful as an insurance broker. And then he had some other businesses that I'd worked in. And so I just thought, okay, this will be what I'll do. I want to be like him. And that was really, I think, what got me started on it. But then I just started reading these different books and I just, I was all in. Were there any other books other than 4-Hour Workweek? That one is an absolute classic. I sadly only read it for the first time a couple of years ago, and it's a little bit aspirational, I think, and a little bit overboard in some ways. But reading that in the context of the early 2020s here and knowing that Tim was talking about like remote work back in the early 2000s was a really mind or frame-breaking concept for me. But were there any other books that stood out to you as infectious in that way? Yeah, definitely a lot of the Robert Kiyosaki books. So I don't necessarily go with a lot of the stuff that Robert says right now, but his early stuff, understanding what he calls the cash flow quadrant and different things about where money comes can be generated from and the different benefits of that. Those were really impactful books to me. There's one in there called, I think, Retire rich, retire young or something like that. And that one was pretty impactful because early on, I would say, I was like, okay, I need to do something that involves me being an owner of my own business. I think that's a really important realization that I hope everybody has at some point. Yeah, Brock, but you know what's interesting? And this is what I'm coming to now as, as I've gone 15 years of doing business it's hard. It's really freaking hard. And I think one thing that a lot of people in business don't talk about is having a W-2 job. And I'm pretty, I'm actually enjoy my W-2 job. And so I think that's one of the things that 
as you go about trying to become an entrepreneur or building things, is it a failure to work a W-2 job? I think there was a time in my life that I would say, yeah, you're not all in, you're not doing, you're not really an entrepreneur or whatever. If you can do that, how do you work for somebody else? But I think as time has evolved and things like remote work and job flexibility, I'll tell you, it's a lot easier to do the type of work that I do now from the position of a $17 billion revenue company than it was doing it from the position of a $100,000 revenue company. It's not all terrible, but I think so in terms of working a corporate job. And so I think that's one of the things that as I get older and I've realized like, okay, wow, I'm 40. Shoot, crap, That how'd that happen? I look at this career that I've built in the corporate world, and then I have to say, ah, but you're not, you don't own five McDonald's franchises like you thought you would at 40. But was that ever realistic for me at the time? And you just because you think that something's realistic when you're 25 or 30, to have a single McDonald's franchise, you got to have a million dollars in net worth. I didn't have that at the time. So obviously, owning five of them and five, it just... But in my mind, it would be, I can do this. I'm an entrepreneur. I can, I'm going to take nothing and I'm going to make it whatever, because we hear those hero stories. And I've been especially susceptible to them because I've had these weird interactions where I've met some uber successful people, billionaires and things. And turned out that they're actually just regular people when you really get down to it. Sometimes maybe they're a little focused, a little very hyper-focused people. But but yeah, we all we're all the same. We're all put one pants leg on at a time, billionaire or not. But yeah, I'm just starting to have more gratitude for where I've done and the things that I've done and and encourage other people to try. Really, I guess that's my end goal. There's such an important balance to strike there between the goal that you're after of like ownership over something, maybe it's a McDonald's franchise, or maybe you have some kind of view about what you ought to be doing. But as you get further down the road, you need to accept that one, knowing actually how hard it is, and knowing that you're actually cut out for it Two, developing and implementing the skills that you learn to actually make that thing successful. And then also there's this other wild card element of finding actually what you like to do, where you could be five years down the road of trying to own a McDonald's franchise and find out that you absolutely hate it, which that doesn't necessarily can't, doesn't mean you won't be successful, but it's going to be a lot less enjoyable for you. Yeah, definitely. I think now might be a good time to, you're talking about your career. Why don't you give me like a two to three minute high level view of what gets you here to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I hope I can cover it in three minutes because I've done like everything there is to do. But yeah, I joined the Marines when I was 17. I was a journalist in the Marines and a TV journalist. I was on AFN overseas in Japan. I was fortunate to be able to go back to college and I went to Vanderbilt and did ROTC and decided to go back in as an officer and was an IT officer in the Marines. So I did one tour in Afghanistan as an IT officer and decided that I wanted to get out and start my own business. So I 
in doing that, I met the founder of Domino's Pizza, and he helped me get started as the kind of initial franchisee for a startup restaurant that he had. So I did that for a couple of years. I was worked directly with the founder of Domino's. That was awesome. But ultimately, it wasn't going to catch fire and race across the nation building franchises. So we wound that down and I went into business in cybersecurity and IT and started doing government contracting. And that's where I've been for the last, gosh, almost 10 years now, no, about eight years now that I've been doing government contracting in the cybersecurity and IT space. Okay. There's so much that we need to unpack there. You're very humble in your description of several of these things. So we're going to, I'm going to dig into these a little bit. We got to start with Tom, is it Manahan? Is that Monahan? Yeah, Tom Monahan. Monahan. Okay. So we got to start with the Domino's King here. How did that relationship come to be? And I guess talk me through the initial idea concept for this this startup restaurant that he wanted to launch yeah sure this is weird this is just totally just crazy story but this is what i love about my life i was in the marines i was looking through the base paper out on a field op and there was a small little box on the like a classified ad that said domino's founder seeks marine for new business venture Marine officer for new business venture. That could not have been more specific of a request than you hear like startups today. They're like very vague. We don't know what we're going to do. This was like, it sounded very targeted. Yeah. And so I was like, shoot, I'll send in my resume. So I sent in my resume. I was still on active duty, but I was within like a year of deciding if I was going to get in, stay in or get out or whatever. I think I still had almost two years to go when we first started talking. But anyway, yeah, they were like, all right, we're going to fly some dude out here to meet you. He was like a CEO or something like that. And they flew him out to Camp Lejeune and we hung out for a couple of days talking about this new concept called Gyrene Burger, which they were saying is a hamburger delivery, basically it was like a cross between a Jimmy John's and a five guys. So basically a five guys menu, simple burgers and fries, a couple other things, but it would be delivered to you within 15 minutes of your order, basically. So it was just super fast burger and fries delivery. And this was at a time before Uber Eats and DoorDash, whenever people were not delivering food at the amount that they were now. So this was 2012, 2013 timeframe. But yeah, so incredible. I flew down to meet Tom Monahan on my own dime. And he was just like, let's do this. And he gave me an autographed copy of his book, Pizza Tiger. So Tom ran Domino's for, I believe, more than 40 years and ended up selling it for a billion dollars in the early 2000s. And so he was a bona fide billionaire. At this point, he'd been kind of out of the restaurant business for about 15 years and was itching to get back started. And he had an idea of let's do these military themed franchise restaurant and let's recruit military officers to be the first franchisees. And so I thought that was really cool. He had a unique like franchising model where 
basically he would become a direct partner with the franchisee and stake the money. So it was basically you could get in for no money down. And that's one of the big reasons why I did it was like, wow, I can, I'm going to be the only guy. I'm going to be working directly with this billionaire. And then I don't got to put any money down on this thing, really. Okay, I'll do it. Yeah, that seems like a, a seemingly slam dunk. How could you say no to that? Yeah, but it, it turned out, I don't want to say it turned out to be a terrible idea because it was like a real turning point in my life, but it turned into a lot of pain. I ended up losing the business. I lost my house. I lost my wife. I lost a lot of stuff during that. So it wasn't all hamburgers and ice cream. Some of it was really difficult to business learn, lessons learned, but it made me such a great business person coming out of that really to experience that and then by the grace of god not go bankrupt and have he just made me whole or whatever and we just kind of went our separate ways but then i was able to recover from it but uh, yeah definitely have experienced some wild swings in oh crap how are we going to make payroll to feeling oh we're on top of the world everything's going to be great so it's been an interesting ride I wouldn't trade it for anything, but it's definitely probably taken a few years off of me with all the stress. <laughs> oh, I can't even imagine. So was the unique idea going into this, was that was it the delivery idea? As you mentioned, yeah. this was pre-food delivery, like way pre-food delivery by a ways. Was that like... Yeah, I was I, here in hindsight, we didn't lean in enough to the technology. I was kind of like, man, we really should be leaning into the technology here. But it was hard. My role as a franchisee, it was a weird situation. You had Mr. Monaghan, who had a lot of money, had a ton of success and influence. But I'll be honest, his time was not 100% focused to my operation in Jiring Burger. I was like the only franchisee. It was worth a few days of his time per week, but in the grand scheme of things of all the business ventures that he was already engaged in, and he had a lot of philanthropic efforts going on, I don't really feel like it was ever like, okay, we're going to put every dime, every bit of focus onto this. So for me, I, that was like a good and bad thing, right? The good thing from my perspective was, man, I can really like, just go for it, right? The guy's kind of going to let me run this thing how I see fit, which was, he was really cool about that, really. He, we did have kind of like a standard operating procedure, but I was developing it on the fly in a lot of ways. So I had a lot of leeway and control, could test new things. The typical franchisee would never have if you weren't with an emerging brand. But the downside to it was we didn't have hundred million dollars of marketing and things to build the brand image or build the technology behind the scenes like a Grubhub or some sort of dispatch system. We just didn't really have all that. And yeah, but it was a cool concept. It sold a crap ton of burgers. We just lost money on everyone we sold. And then that got to be problematic because everybody was like, oh, have you tried Jireen Burger? Try Jireen Burger. It's so awesome. And so we grew super fast. And that's what I was saying about feeling like I was on top of the world. I felt, oh my God, like, this is great. We're all, like quickly early on, they were like, okay, we need to start looking at second stores. 
And that's an exciting feeling, right? If, oh my God, they're going to, we've done one store and now six months later, we're looking at opening a new store. And then within 18 months, it was basically bankrupt. <laughs> it's like that rocket ship. And then is it's extreme. And, but yeah, that was pretty, pretty wild. The biggest thing there is we didn't price it high enough. Like we didn't really think that you could charge $16 to have somebody bring you a burger and fries or $20 like you do with Uber Eats. We just didn't think that in 2013, people were really willing to spend that. So all in, we were delivering a burger and fries for 12 bucks or something like that. It was maybe like $2 more than McDonald's or something. It was not... There just wasn't enough margin there to really make a run of it. They're just, we were just, every time we grew, that was one of the hard things about delivery and especially delivery of hot food was every time that you grew, if you tried to add like maybe eight new orders per hour, you would need a whole nother employee or something like that to take all that food. So it was like, you're scaling, you had to scale your employees very tightly with the amount of revenue that you were taking in. And there was just not a good way to make a gap on the margin of the employee labor, if that makes any sense. It was just like, it was just like a hamster wheel that just kept getting bigger and bigger because we just weren't charging enough for the product. Lesson learned, but at the time, was, there's a lot of competition. We had 20 restaurants on the same street. It's just... There's so many things that go into it. Like, why was it successful? Why was it not successful? But but yeah, I learned a ton, though. It's cutthroat, man. The restaurant business is like razor-thin margins. Labor pool is very varied, and it's temporary, sometimes transient employees, college students and stuff. So it's just, it's a challenging business to be in. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And I still have a little place in my heart for fast food. At the earlier, I mentioned McDonald's. That's like my dream would be to like own one of those big multi-unit franchises. But as I get older, though, I'm starting to realize that, I don't know, maybe I don't want to take on that. <laughs> was the concept, was it 100% delivery? There was no It was not. It initially was. And then he let me modify it to have some dine-in, mostly because of the location that we found had 2,000 square foot of dine-in. But initially, no, it was just straight delivery only. And in hindsight, he's he was probably right on that. It probably would have been best to continue the delivery only. And the dine-in was always a drag on our business. And I don't know that it really helped us all that much. We did 90% delivery. So we were paying a higher price per square foot to have this big dining room that... 10% of the customers ate at. So yeah, in hindsight, that maybe a delivery fee, higher prices, there are a lot of things. The other thing about it is we were selling burgers, right? The greasiest, like most incredible burgers. And they were super premium, right? It was really great food-wise. But like, I would start to feel guilty, Brock, after I'd deliver to this same person's house like three days in a row. I'd be like, God, like this person's going to have a heart attack if they keep eating this product every single day. And it's weird that you'd never think that you'd be like, it's like selling cigarettes to somebody or something. I just felt, oof. So the unhealthiness of the burger and fries business 
was part of the reason why it was limited in its success. I think obviously there's plenty of burger and fries businesses out there, but it's just, there's only so many times you can order that in a week. And I think that it wasn't long after that Panera started delivery. And I was like, oh, that is a game changer. And I think it's been really successful for their business. When you're doing delivered food, you got a lot of offices that order and a lot of catering type things. And burgers and fries were just not really made for catering like pizza or salads or some other type of product that's a little bit easier to cater. So there was just a few things in it that inherently made it more difficult and ultimately is why you haven't seen burger delivery successful on a large scale. It's interesting too. I was going to ask a few minutes ago whether you seized looking at the prices of Uber Eats and stuff today and then maybe thinking in hindsight that maybe had you charged more, it could have been successful. But at the same time, in the last 10 years since you did this, there have been a lot of large changes in just market dynamics of the acceptance of food delivery like that was so early on, you were fighting an uphill battle. Like when you are telling people like, hey, we're going to deliver food to you. Like when that's that just is. And see, this is the thing. This is where a guy like Monahan, he would have not, his philosophy, which made a huge impact on my life, but turned out to be against market trends or maybe like a more old school way of thinking. Monahan was really emphasized us having control of the delivery of the food. So when we talk about Uber Eats, you're talking about independent contractors that show up to your restaurant and receive the food from you, right? That was just, Monaghan is not for that. He doesn't want to give up that. He's all about, Domino's was all about the guy showing up in the crisp uniform with the clean shaven face and the girl in the ponytail or whatever. They just had this clean cut image at your front door and they've put so much emphasis on that, that they grew to 9,000 stores or whatever they had. But so he was not one to just be like, okay, any independent contractor that wants to come do the last mile of my delivery, go for it. He just would have never gone for that. There's just no, no way he would have ever given up that level of control. Now that's what we ultimately, I do think, yeah, maybe if we would have tried some of that stuff, we wouldn't have had some of the challenges that we did. Like insurance was a major challenge for us. And we spent a lot of money on workers comp and stuff due to the delivery drivers getting in car accidents. So it's maybe if they were all independent contractors, we wouldn't have had to deal with that. And maybe that line item in the P&L wouldn't have been so drastically negative. Yeah, you can go back and dissect it a hundred different ways. I also didn't have any clue what I was doing, Brock. That's the other thing. I was straight out of the Marines. I'd done... Nothing related to fast food marketing or anything really like that. Just kind of like out there winging it. And so it was an incredible experience, though. Highly suggested if you get the chance to do a startup restaurant with the founder of Domino's. If you ever get that chance. If anybody else it. ever gets that chance, take it. One thing that you said that was interesting to me is how focused he was on ownership of the experience. And it's interesting because to this day, Domino's is still gets a lot of flack from analysts and like the financial markets and whatnot 
and being critical of ownership of that because they probably would make a lot more money if they would sub that out. But their ownership of it cannibalizes some of their own local stores with this fortressing strategy. And I know he hasn't been a part of the business for a long time, but they have continued to run with that and are a great yeah. example to this day of why that does work. But there are a lot of things that you got to account for that you highlighted there. Yeah, there was, I took away so much from Tom and Tom was so successful at Domino's and even the culture that we had at Jireen Burger is a very fun culture. And I think that was one thing that was really cool. And I think if you're able to recreate that in your own business of work doesn't have to suck all the time. And what I mean by that is we delivered burgers on mopeds for a portion of our day or electric bikes or whatever. We had a couple of different ways that people could do that. That was fun, right? Like you're, there were days, of course there were cold days and rainy days and stuff where maybe it didn't always feel so great. But there were those beautiful fall days or awesome spring summer days where you're zooming around on a moped, go deliver food to somebody, and then they hand you a $5 tip and you just go zoom back on your moped, right? That is of jobs to have when you're in college. That was a pretty freaking fun job. And Tom was always infectious about having fun with what you would do. And like we would do these competitions on who could make the fastest batch of fries. And he just, he was always about making competition among your employees, even on the stupidest things and timing yourselves. And, but it did create an environment where people really felt good about one another. And I think we ended up having employees that stayed a very long time from basically from the beginning to the end, almost two years. Which for a burger and fries place, you know, fast food place paying basically minimum wage, that's hard to do. So we were doing some things in terms of that. Were there any other major takeaways like you took away from Tom and or the restaurant industry that kind of linger with you today and maybe impact what you do today in some way? Yeah, Tom is a very religious person and I wasn't, I grew up religious or grew up in a religious household, but I'm not personally like super religious, but I think Tom really made an impact on me in turn. He used to talk about this thing and I think this is what was so cool about having access to him is he would, we would not just talk about burgers and fries and how to bring more customers or whatever, but he would actually talk about life and different things. And he would say that to be successful, you have to have three legs of the stool. And one was financial leg, like your business and your personal life has to be straight financially. Health, he was really big on physical fitness. And he's like into his 80s and challenging you to a push-up contest. He just really competitive and athletic. And so he would always talk about having physical health. And then spiritual health. So basically, without those three legs of the stool, he said, you're going to fall over. And so he was really adamant about living on this kind of three-legged stool concept that evolved around your own personal spiritual life, your financial well-being, and, and then your just your overall general health and what you eat and how you exercise and things like that. Really fascinating guy, but he... That's how he lives his life. And he's super diligent and super disciplined. And he talks about that from his time in the Marines. 
he got that discipline in boot camp and just never stopped. I've got to admit, I'm not that guy. And I feel guilty about it after uh, seeing Tom do that. But according to him, like he was doing a hundred pushups in boot camp, and he kept waking up and doing a hundred pushups till he's 80. And I believe it. He really does look great for his age and is still very active even now but but yeah i'm not getting up and doing push-ups when i first thing when i wake up i need to get that part of the stool rectified quickly it is cool to see examples where the military instills a level of confidence or discipline as you say in his example where it goes on to positively impact them for the rest of their lives and then they continue to attribute that to the military. I think that's really interesting. And I am excited to talk to you for a variety of reasons. But in our, one of our first conversations, I was excited to hear because I didn't know this about him. That was a really cool fact to learn. And I continue to be impressed by what veterans are able to do in the market. Yeah, there's been so many successful veterans and Tom Monahan's story is just incredible, like a legit orphan to billionaire. It's just one of the most incredible rags to riches stories of our time. And he's just really incredible. And that there's so many others, folks that served in the military that have gone on to build just incredible brands. Lots of great examples out there for us to emulate. Yeah, most certainly. So you end up winding down Gyrene because it doesn't really work out. Not selling burgers for enough should have been charging today's Uber Eats prices to stay in business. What ends you up going the complete opposite direction of a startup in the restaurant space and working your way more towards government contracting and IT? Money. <laughs> no, it's just about circumstances, right? I kind of washed out of the restaurant business. I wasn't, I didn't leave bankrupt, but I didn't, didn't really have much. Tom was, I can get you into Jersey Mike's over here if you want to get into Jersey Mike's. But I was like super over leveraged. I had ended up lost my house and my relationship and just, it was tough losing. I kind of lost everything, if I'm honest, with the ultimate failure of Jiren Burger. So yeah, I just was like, had to go back to something that was fairly safe and comfortable. And that was Cisco networking IT. So that, that was something that I did when I was in Afghanistan and the Marines. And I just knew that it was an in-demand skill. I knew that it paid well. And so I just kind of, when I washed out of the restaurant business, it was like, okay, I'm qualified to go work in fast food or be a manager of a fast food restaurant, or I could try to get back going with this IT stuff that I was doing in the Marines and see if I can pick up another high paying job. And I was able to do that. I was able to pretty quickly get a job as a project manager for Cisco networking type stuff, and then have built a career out of Cisco networking and then ultimately leading into the government contracting space. What have been your large scale takeaways from that progression, like where have you seen changes in the market or industry? And then why is like government contracting a good place to be? Or maybe I guess maybe even a bad place to be if you want to take the other side of the coin. Yeah, I can explain how I made the transition. So yeah. it started back at Jirene Burger. So I, I was part of the Tennessee Veterans Business Association and 
one of my good friends had a government contracting business. And there were a lot of government contractors who were, lived around the Oak Ridge National Laboratories area, which is where we do a lot of our nuclear research and stuff like that in Tennessee. And so there were quite a few government contracting businesses there. And so when the these business owners would come, they would come eat at my restaurant. They were trying to help me get some business. So they would hold their meetings there. And so anyway, I saw my friend who was very similar to me in a lot of ways. He had grown a business in the janitorial services space to several million dollars a year. I think at the time it was like four or five million a year. I think he's up now. I just recently had coffee with him and I think they're doing about 15 million a year right now. But I was like, wow, that's a lot of money. For me, a struggling restaurateur who was bleeding 20000 a month and, and losses from my restaurant, I was like, geez, I got to do something. And so once I got doing the IT stuff, I was like, man, I think I could do this. I could do what he's doing for janitorial and groundskeeping. I could just do it with IT people. And, and I had also heard about the service disabled veteran owned small business designation and kind of the idea of diversity contracting. So for those that aren't familiar with it, basically the government has a certain amount of money that they devote for various projects. And some of those projects can get designated with a diversity business what's called a set aside. And that means that only certain businesses that meet certain criteria can bid on this work. And in this case, it was only veteran-owned businesses, service-disabled veteran-owned small businesses can bid on this work. As someone who was trying to start a business who was in IT, I thought, okay, this is going to be awesome. I'm going to go open this service-disabled IT business and I'm going to get all this government contracting work, right? And my buddy who's doing janitorial services for $30 an hour, I'm going to be doing IT services for $150 an hour. And I'm going to be, I'm going to be rich. This is going to be awesome. <laughs> Two years later, I have done a ton of work, a lot of effort, a lot of years of grinding, but lost probably 50, 60,000 real dollars and was probably on the verge of bankruptcy, if you'd be honest with it at the time. It was just, it was crucially, it was extremely hard to do. And now where I'm at now, more on the corporate side of things, I can easily see why. But yeah, I think that's the transition of how it came about, seeing other people be successful and saying, okay, I can emulate that. And then going and building my house the way I thought it needed to be built. But the truth is, it's really challenging to drive, especially IT contracts, as a one-man band kind of business. So I think that's the biggest takeaway there. So understanding what a small business is to the government, I think, is really crucial. So that a small business size cap for my type of business in IT was 32 million. So that means a company can be doing 31 million a year in revenue and have like 149 people on staff. And they're still considered a small business or a service disabled veteran owned small business. So when I'm Rob Weinkoop cybersecurity expert, 
a one-man company or a two-man company, I've partnered with somebody that's better and can do X, Y, Z. You're going up against somebody that's doing 31 million in revenue, right? Like how could anyone possibly fathom that they might usurp that existing contractor, right? Like it's just... It's almost ludicrous. Now, do people do it? Yes. And you'll hear business people that have been successful in government contracting, but I'll tell you, it is very hard. And it is, and that's because you're competing with people who are already, A, already very connected to just have a lot more money than you, a lot more buying power and different things like that. They have better pricing with their manufacturers. And there's just a whole host of reasons why the incumbent has an edge over the person who's just, oh, I'm hanging my shingle to do cybersecurity for the government. It just, it turned out to be just a really terrible plan. I think I could have been successful with it, but I just didn't have enough money. Like I, I maybe if I'd had about $200,000 that I could have burnt through, I think I probably could have got the ball rolling, but, but it's a very, it's a very slow sales cycle dealing with the government. You'll talk to them about something and They'll go through multiple stages of bidding and things like that. And it can take a year, two years for a deal to go through. And so it's just, if you don't have cash to burn during that time as a startup, it's just extremely difficult. But I kind of, from there, I essentially ran out of money and I was like, oh, crap, I'm out of money. I told my wife, I was like, I'm going to need to do something. I'm going to have to go back to work, get a W-2 job. And I was super like, ah, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I flipped my LinkedIn to open a contract work. And that's where I met the current company that I'm at now. And about a year into it, six months or a year into it, they asked me to go full-time with them. And so I ended up shutting down that the IT business. But And then I worked full-time as a W-2 person. I started as a contractor, but then they hired me on W-2 there. And I oversee federal contracting for professional services. So installing mainly Cisco type products, networking products, stuff like that for IT systems for the Department of Defense. I think it would be helpful to paint a picture of the government contracting space in general. With this designation of like the service disabled veterans owned small business, what types of contracts are available at all? And then you said now in much larger role, looking in hindsight, you're seeing why you, maybe you weren't successful and it's because you're competing against these other technically small, but the $31 million companies. Is that, are you just fishing in a completely different pond? And why is that competition still just as strong? Because I, theoretically, if it is a set aside, you're going to, you have a better chance, I would guess, as a solo act even in that smaller pool than a solo act in looking at the entire budget. So yeah, you would think so so the answer is yes, but you would kind of but it's deceiving, right? So the answer of are you just hunting in a different field or fishing in a different pond? Yes. So a lot of times with these procurements, and I'm speaking mostly related to like IT and cybersecurity, although this applies to any type of government contracting. They'll put what they call a contract vehicle out and they'll say anybody that meets these requirements, it could be 
woman-owned business or minority-owned business or Native American-owned business or service-disabled, any of those things, right? They will put it out on a public website and say, everyone send us your applications to be considered on this. And they might accept, let's say they accept 150 companies. Now, only those 150 companies can bid on the future work that gets awarded into that bucket, I guess you could say. So the government has all these contracts going out and they appropriate funds to it. And these certain contract vehicles can only be bid on by these certain companies. So you're correct in that you got a smaller field to hunt in. But if you're like Elmer Fudd out there and you're going up against essentially <laughs> Raytheon or something like that, it's hard to compete. It just really is. Like I said, because you've got those folks that have been in the business for 15 years with established relationships and large lines of credit. And you may be in the same pool, but are you really competitive with them? Because the contracting officers, they know who's who and right. And the pricing dictates and things like that. So if you're, I think I'll go back. You asked a question about what is government contracting or whatever, but basically it's the government buys stuff, whatever it is. They buy products, they buy bullets, they buy rockets, they buy components for all those things. And they also buy labor. They buy temporary contract labor where people will go and sit in an office and do a certain job function. They pay for upgrades of computer systems or alarm systems or fencing. You, there's not a thing that the government really doesn't buy. They buy everything. And it's all put out for bid publicly. And there's certain ways that they can advance those procurements. They can say, I want this one to only go to women-owned businesses. I want this one to only go to minority-owned businesses. They can say, I want this one to be totally open. Any person, any company in America can bid on this one or whatever. Those are vehicle specific then. So this yeah. one vehicle is only women-owned businesses. This other vehicle only service disabled. Okay. Correct. Yep. And you, and so from my case, right, when I had my business, Patriot Technology, we went so far as to get on those contract vehicles, right? So we're trapped. So my like in the literal day to day of building this GovCon business was flying over to different conferences and stuff. And you go in and it'll be like the VA and they'll say, oh, we've got this computer problem and we're thinking about putting it out for bid. And that's how you get like the insider information that's needed to be successful. You like do all this backroom stuff where you find out like, oh, they need this or whatnot. And you kind of jockey to be early into that and have a chance to use your set aside to make sure the work goes directly to you without a competitive process. So I know that's confusing, but instead of bidding against 100 other people or even a thousand other businesses, there's opportunities with some of these set-asides where you can just say, I have the service that you want and they can do what's called a sole source where they give the small business the work directly without any competition or anything like that. Now, it's, there's a lot of different rules and stuff to dictate when that happens and doesn't happen. But that's what makes government contracting attractive is because you're talking about really large dollar amounts in some cases, hundreds of millions of 
your hundreds of thousands of dollars in each project, which can you can quickly build a several million dollar business in government contracting, but getting the first contract can take years. How you mentioned that you're like flying to all these conferences and whatnot to get the inside track. How critical is that to being successful in there? Is it still, you might be on the vehicle, but your network is still incredibly important to be considered for those things? Yeah. I mean, so in my case, it was such a heartbreaker because I really did a lot of work to network. And you do that by attending bidder conferences. And so the government will, there's a lot of gates that come to issuing a contract, right? So say the government wants to replace all their IT systems. There's going to be a time where they're going to invite the government contractors, the bidders to come on site and look at everything. What's the status of the wiring? Like how many was there? Like how was it cabled? All that stuff, right? And so in those bidder conferences and stuff, you can start to network with other people who may be larger than you and stuff like that. And you can start to build those relationships by attending bidder conferences and just attending government contracting conferences and things like that. So crucial to do that. But I think the hard part is all that stuff costs a lot of money, real money. And so if you don't have money coming in, you're, it's really difficult to be successful. In hindsight, like I was saying, I think there are two ways to be successful as a new entrant in government contracting, maybe three ways. The first way is to buy your way in. That's very expensive. So buy your way in means purchase an existing government contractor. That's probably the first and best way but it's very expensive, millions of dollars. You're going to have to go get a SBA loan. You're going to need hundreds of thousands of dollars of your own money to get the loan to buy an existing government contractor. Now, the other way is to have a new novel idea, invention, service that nobody else does. Now, that's probably the most expeditious path, but you've got to be inventive, creative, got to be you got to have something that the government wants and be the only person that's got it. That's the way that when you have no experience, no money, no anything, but you're like a software engineer that developed this program that they really want, they don't care. They'll still buy it, even if you're a one-man person. So that's the other way to do it. So you can buy your way in, you can have a novel invention or idea or software, and they just buy it because they want it. or just a long road to hoe, right? Just wait it out and just bid on all sorts of stuff until you start to get what's called past performance. So I think that's the big thing. A company needs to have federal past performance to be successful in government contracting. So when they look, if the government's saying, I'm buying IT services, they want to see, okay, what other contracts has this company held in IT services? And so if they go and look and they see, that there are no others, they're just going to disqualify you or put you as one of the lower scoring ones, and then you won't win. So it's it's like a chicken and the egg thing, right? Like you get that first one, then you can on the second one, look at my past performance. I did that first one. But getting to the first one can sometimes take years and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in grinding. 
I'd love to talk about each of those three ways, just like really briefly, maybe a question sure. on each. Maybe we'll start with the one that you just mentioned first of taking the long road, as you call it. Are you able to like collectively sign a contract or like bid on work as like a subsidiary of another company that yeah, is also that's what that? a lot of people try to do and that was what my original goal was and i think that's what most people's goals should try to be right so there's like larger government contractors and they have a certain amount of small business stuff that they've got to transact through their larger contracts in a lot of ways you can think of it as just like a, a fairness distribution system, this government contracting. It's literally making sure that certain federal dollars go into certain buckets of macroeconomic categories and other things like that, right? That's basically what they're looking for. And But you can't just be a check in the box. I think that's the biggest challenge is you actually have to know how to do the work that's being procured, right? So it's easy to say, oh, I'm a service disabled veteran, like now I'm a service disabled cybersecurity person, right? But the truth is you've got to not only fit the demographic requirements, but you've got to actually be able to perform the statement of work. And in the case of those subcontracting, sometimes it's really challenging to marry that up. In the company that I work for now, we deal a lot with small businesses and we have a mismatch on where our needs are as a company for, from a subcontracting standpoint. So I could, if there was a small business out there that could do a certain, that could do short-term installations of IT equipment, I could probably throw them a lot of work. But I've not been able to find a small business that's really set up to be able to do that sort of thing. So they will, most small businesses want to get on those type of what we call butts and seats contracts, which is 10 people staffed in this Fort Leonard Wood education center or something like that. And like they go there and they work every day. And at the end of the month, your company invoices the government for them and you make a margin off of that. But my company needs short term. They need people that can fly to this base and work for five days and then fly to this base and work for five days. And But if I don't have a partner that's really set up for that, we can't do business. So it's it's challenge on both sides, more challenging than you would think. There's a couple of businesses that I've been trying to work with from a, we'll call it a prime side. So there's primes and subcontractors in government contracting. And so from the prime side, there's another couple of companies that I've been wanting to work with, but we just cannot find a project where it's just a fit for the both of us. So it's it can turn out to be more challenging than you think. And it's not as simple as just being like, oh, hey, Boeing, can I be a subcontractor to you? Like, most of the time, you are going into a bid with your team already. And like I said, these bids may take two or three years. So if you're a new entrant to government contracting and you're messaging primes and things like that saying, hey, I saw this opportunity. I want to be part of that. I know how to do cybersecurity or whatever it is, contract construction or whatever. They, you're not a non, you're not a known com commodity to them. You have no past experience with them. And second, they've already got somebody. They've already been working this. So it's like, 
how are you going to come in and slide in under that person that they've already got there? You're probably not going to. So it really comes through pressing the flesh at those conferences where you meet like the prime small business liaison or something like that. And they say, okay, yeah, we'll give you a shot. And, and it's really, that's how it's, that's how those deals happen, really. Just grinding your way through a lot of no's until somebody finally gives you a contract. And I think you mentioned this before, the long sales cycle, I'm sure, is preventative from people just coming in, recognizing that there's a gap. Like you were saying, hey, we're in need of this but it's really difficult to come in and just spin something up really quickly and all of a sudden find all of the people that meet that criteria, especially if it's technical and that meets your criteria because there's of the bid process and you can't just roll in there and say, oh, I'll start up whatever they need. They, you gotta, yeah. It's a duration game and then you also need to be known for that one specific ability. Yeah, it's just a real, it's a challenge on both sides. You've got, there's different approaches, like you can try to, do, so with IT, it was difficult to do things locally. Some people, I will say construction, if you're a person that's interested in construction, government contracting, a lot of stuff is really localized. And I think localized, you have a little bit better chance of influencing stuff. But a lot of IT and technical decision-making, weapon systems, things like that's all going to be very centralized at technology centers and stuff like that. So it's if you're not able to influence that directly, and I mean that by getting in front of those people, seeing them at industry events, scheduling time to go meet with them, right? It can be very challenging. And in my case, my business was based in Nashville, Tennessee, right? There's not a really big government contracting hub, right? You'll see a lot of government contractors base themselves out of Northern Virginia because it's a lot easier to get around and press the flesh and do the things that you need to do without having to travel all the time. It's a very much a relationship-driven experience and past performance-driven type of environment. And so when you're going in as a an upstart with no experience, it's a mountain to climb. That second option that you mentioned as a way to come into this space, coming up with a novel idea. How do you, even if let's say that you are an inventive person or comes up with a new idea, how do you be a part of these vehicles? Because if it is something new, it's likely something that the government doesn't already have and isn't already asking for work on. So does how you're like, uh, you yeah, actually they do work? have websites. So there's websites. So one of the coolest things about the American government is that we have these things called SBIR, Small Business Innovation and Research Grants. And some companies that you're familiar with, some products like I think the Dyson Vacuum or some of the original funding for the R&D there was provided for by the government through the Small Business Innovation and Research Grants. If you go to the SBIR website, there's definitely a lot of opportunity there where they'll publish every agency, right? It could be Indian and Indian Affairs Health Service, and it could be DOD, it could be Treasury or whatever. And they'll say, I need a software that does this, or we're looking for ideas about AI and 
weapon systems or whatever. And so you can go there and you can basically say, hey, I've got an idea for AI and weapon systems or whatever it might be. And and then you can get invited into these funding tranches to further your early development. So that's one area. If you have an emerging technology or you're a technologist or somebody that's interested in building a better mousetrap is the small business innovation and research. And then there's another one called ST. I don't, I don't, I'll have to look that one up. But anyway, there's two different sources of funding for research and development for early stage companies for novel ideas. And then that very first one that you mentioned, it's interesting. I wasn't expecting you to be so downbeat about the SBA path. I talked to a lot of vets that go through the entrepreneurship through acquisition, buying a business, and that seems to be a relatively attractive way to buy yourself a job, scratch the entrepreneurship itch. And then particularly in the government contracting space, maybe have a chance to utilize that designation to compete on contracts that maybe other people can't compete for. Why are you like maybe not as optimistic on that as a path aside from the financial implications? Yeah, I think it's mostly a financial thing. I think it's tough to explain, right? So let's just think about a purchase price of a business. Like a million dollar revenue GovCon business is, it's nothing. I don't have one. I would love to have one. Okay, so I don't mean to be negative for those that do. Okay, so I'm super envious. I wish I had a million dollar revenue GovCon business as a something that I privately own. But in the grand scheme of things, a million dollar business could be seven employees, eight employees on staff. So when you think of it in that terms, like what's an eight person company compared to the company I work for that's got 5,000, 7,000 people? That's a GovCon, right? 5,000, 7,000 people is a GovCon. If you're a GovCon with six employees on staff, that's you're teetering on insolvency at any point in time. You're like, you got a million dollars coming in and you might be able to, on good years, net two or $300,000 or something. Envious for a ton of people, but there's a big risk variable there too, though. Like government contract could end. You've committed to spend, what, 1X, 2X. You spent 800, a million dollars. You've put $200,000 down to the SBA. I'm not down about it. I'm just, it's, it's just challenging. There's, does everyone have two or $300,000 available? And if they do, are you prepared to risk all of that for a six person GovCom business that may have six years of track record? Do you know for a fact that 20 years from now, that's going to be a 50 person company? You really don't because GovCon is about price. It's about set asides. It's about who it can be brutal. I think that for many of the reasons that you just stated, and from a lot of the learnings of this conversation as a whole, people certainly should be thinking about applying some sort of discount to acquiring a business if they're going to go that way, just because it's a government contractor doesn't, that shouldn't demand a premium. Like some people may think it's more sensitive to, hey, the owner's been doing it for 20 years and he knows all these people and you don't. 
the sales cycle, as you mentioned, that it sounds like there's a lot of reasons why risks that may be not present in another form of business. Yeah. And also one thing that I've heard, and I haven't seen, I haven't actually started to make any offers on any government contracting, small businesses or anything, but I've heard that if the business is an SDVOSB and has only SDVOSB customers, they can only sell to an SDVOSB. So rather than a premium, there's a pretty, like you said, a pretty substantial discount there in that not just anybody can gobble them up. There's only a certain amount of buyers that can actually take that and do something with it. So in that case, the buyer is actually in a pretty good position. Now, I do think that the seller, you know, they know what they've got, right? You want that cash flow. You want that ability to take that over because it's easy. So they're, they have an incentive, I guess, to, to charge accordingly as well. But yeah, that's, Ideally, I think that's something that I would like to pursue. So I'm not down upon it. It's just uh, when I sit here thinking, man, if I work really hard to save $200,000, like something that I never thought I'd be able to do when I was 18 as a Marine, do I want to take that and then go buy a four-person GovCon for the chance to maybe make a million or something like that. I don't know. It's scary. <laughs> At 40, it's scary. At 25, maybe it wouldn't be. Now that I'm trying to prepare for retirement and things like that, I'm starting to ask myself, do I really want to take all my savings and wrap it up into a fragile GovCon small business? So there's a heart part of me that wants to, and then there's like the logic part of me that's eh, a lot of risk there. A large swing at the point that you're at in your career. It's hard. And that's something that, as you were talking about what's on my mind today, that's something that I'm dealing with, right? Just graduated, kid just graduated high school. You like look at, at your the last 20 years. Wow, holy crap. How did that happen? Super pleased at how it's turned out, but it's been over in a blink of the eye. So you're like, crap, I hope I got a good 20 plus years in me still to go. So let's get at it and let's make the best use of what time we've got. That's what I'm talking about. I like that attitude. I think that's the right approach. Yeah, I think that's, I take a lot of that from Monahan and the Jireen thing. The guy gets up every single day and he works hard in philanthropy and the other projects that he's doing. He's extremely focused. I was really pleased to have that. And I think we were talking a little bit about military. I think the trait in the Marine Corps, the leadership trait of endurance is I think really applicable to entrepreneurs and business types because businesses have seasons. I've had seasons where I thought I was going to be the next hamburger mogul and I was going to be Ray Kroc and having burger spots all over the country. And then within a year, I'm like on the verge of breaking down because I've lost everything. Those wild swings You've got to really be prepared and I think have an endurance to not give up on the low parts and keep building towards. And in my case, I've been able to fall forward. Even when I wasn't successful with the government contracting, it led me to a knowledge base about government contracting to where I could then move into a corporate role and have insider knowledge or knowledge of a specific skill set that was valuable. And sometimes our business ideas or whatever, our side hustles that we don't always turn out how we hope they will. 
But if you can learn something from it or take away something from it that you use later, I think it all happens for a reason. And that's where I'm at today. And just trying to think about, okay, what does the next 20 years look like? And how do I go from here? I think that highlights the importance of, as you said, endurance, but staying in the game is more important than anything. Like you need to not get wiped out and be able to continue sticking around. And sometimes that means you're not going to do what you're currently doing or even what you think you will be doing. You got to adapt to changing in market environment, personal feelings, all of those things. Yeah. And I just bloom where you're planted. And I think that's the biggest thing about it is there's so many times in life where we think about, man, if I can only just have this certain path, right? And I had a really big setback when I was in the military where I was a journalist in the Marines. And then I went to Vanderbilt and I studied communication and I wanted to be a public affairs officer in the Marines. And they didn't give it to me. They gave it, they gave me IT and I was terrible at it. I went to the IT school and I finished last in my class. And then here, fast forward 20 years later, I've got a really respectable IT career. I'm very knowledgeable about IT and the government and IT contracting within the government. And what, I was the last placed student in my first military IT class. It doesn't affect you. So now I know a lot about IT and I'm happy to go and talk with any of those peers from back then. I think I can probably carry on a pretty respectable technical conversation today. So just where you where you are today does not always determine where you're going to end up. That's really good. I like that. Speaking of not knowing where you're going to end up, we've got to talk about worm buckets before we close <laughs> up today. Give me the rundown on how selling worm composters on the internet came to be. Ties any into any of this? Oh, man. I, it, it was really just kind of like a little COVID project, if I can be honest. So basically during COVID, during the work from home lockdown and all that, my wife and I were really big into the garden and we still are very big into the garden. And I was looking for different ways to compost. And I came across this YouTube channel of this guy that was composting with worms, earthworms. They'll eat your food scraps. They'll eat your trash. They'll eat your junk mail, anything paper, anything organic. They'll eat and turn it into worm castings or worm poop, which is like a very potent valuable compost mix. So anyway, I started getting into worms, started making my own compost with these worms. And one thing led to another. And I was like, I'm going to design a worm compost bin kit, like a beginner kit. And that's what we did. And so my wife and I just put it out into the ether and started ordering prototypes from Alibaba and putting different things with this and mocking up instructions and whatever. And then, yeah, so after about a year, we, we filed patent applications and trademarks and all that sort of stuff. We had a legit, I should have had one here for the video, but uh, yeah, we ended up building this product called the Worm Bucket. It's an indoor worm composter kit, very beginner focused kit. And we sold over a thousand of them. It's she ended up quitting her full-time job. So it's mostly her. She runs the business, my wife, Audrey. 
And I, I guess I designed it, if you will. And then she helped me really do all the marketing. She's in charge of the Shopify site and the Instagram and the all that. So she's really the marketing and day-to-day operations person. But yeah, we have a worm farm Amazon business that's operated out of our home and it's allowed my wife to to quit her corporate job. I still have my corporate job in government contracting. And so I think that that's one of the takeaways there, right? It's like you, I spent my whole life feeling, gosh, to own your own company is the ideal. And to be a W-2 employee is like a bad thing. And then now I've gotten to a point where I kind of what I do, right? I don't necessarily want to quit my jobs to sell worm farms. My wife is doing that. And she's really enjoying it. But I enjoy the GovCon stuff. I enjoy working with small businesses. I enjoy IT and I'm a nerd and that sort of stuff. I think it's interesting as I'm getting to a point where Worm Bucket is a real bona fide business now. I'm really happy that I can kind of relinquish that to my talented wife and let her run the business and I can continue to do what I do in government contracting. Uh, play to your strengths. Like you said, you were just saying a few minutes ago, bloom where you're planted. And just because you're sticking with your W-2, if it's what you like to do, then so what? You have time to tinker on the side and you also have a roof over your head, which some entrepreneurs do not. So, Yeah, that's the thing. At this moment in time, from a profit perspective, the worm bucket is only doing about probably $2,500 a month profit. So that's not going to replace my day job by any means. And uh, it has been good though, that it is in profit, that it's profitable. And we're very happy about that. And we're just trying to keep that business growing in a healthy and profitable way. I think that's one thing I've, over all these strings of business failures, one of the biggest things is just overspending and not being tight. I've gotten, as I've gotten older, I've gotten tighter. And as the tighter I've gotten, the more, financially profitable my businesses have become. When you say tighter, I understand what you're getting at, but can you maybe unpack that a little bit more? And is it tighter? I used to just believe anything, right? Oh, you tell me that this marketing consultancy you're going to give me for $1,500 is going to solve all my problems. Sure. Here's $1,500. Go consult on my ads or whatever. And now I've just over so many years of observing and being part of this entrepreneurial process. Now I'm a little bit more hesitant to give away money to contractors or even to my own delusions. Oh, I'll give you an example. With Worm Bucket, there are times where we were like, oh, we'll just, Google says we should triple the ad spend on the business. Talking over with the wife, we say, okay, let's do it. Triple the ad spend, triple the expenses, but didn't triple the sales, right? Like it just, all of a sudden it went from profitable campaign to just absolute stinker. And it's crap. That wasn't the outcome that we were looking for. But instead of being able to, in the past, I would write off, I would ride those out and be like, oh, it's investment in the brand. And if I have a bad marketing campaign for a week or two weeks or whatever, if I'm, and by bad marketing campaign, I'm like we're losing money on the campaign, right? We're not, I'm paying a dollar for an ad and I'm making 80 cents. There are times when your business will get in those sorts of ways and you can delude yourself into saying, oh, I'm building a brand. It's okay. It's only losing a little bit. I can kick in and I can kick in $500 this month and cover all that bad ad spend and it's no big deal. 
But the truth is that's how you do bad behaviors and those bad behaviors snowball into bigger bad behaviors and you can find yourself. So Audrey, my wife has actually been a really positive driving force in my business because she's like an accountability partner on the financial side, because I can easily convince myself that whatever marketing campaign or whatever is going to be worth whatever risk. And I think Audrey is there to help me really be realistic about it. And generally that will mean that I, instead of just throwing mud at the wall, whatever sticks, I'm a lot more methodical in the advertising dollars. Has that or like her voice coming to you to rein you back in on that, has that changed how you spend your money? Or is it just overall spending less on stuff like that? It's, oh, we're not going to do Facebook ads because those are this. Or is it changing the types of things that you're spending money on as well to drive growth? Yeah, it definitely has. We've we've killed off campaigns that were not good. We've started to add money from others that are good. We've developed alternative campaigns like affiliate marketing and Audrey has done a great job recruiting like influencers and stuff like that and managing all that. So yeah, definitely definitely impactful to have her as part of the team. I could see a business like that having a lot of user-generated content and be probably, I hate throwing around the word viral because I don't think that really means what a lot of people think it does. But in terms of like social channels, I could see that being like a big thing where you could incorporate the users of the product into helping advertise it simultaneously. Yeah, we've we've been really fortunate. We've, I guess I would consider it we've gone viral twice in a small way, small level of virality. So when we launched in January or June of 2022, Audrey posted to Reddit a picture of us with a thousand worm buckets in the garage. And that post got a th- or got a million views. And so that was huge day for us. We sold like a, uh, 141 worm composters in one day, right out the gate, just a huge day. And then we had another one where I did a time lapse of worms eating a watermelon. And over the course of two weeks, they completely consumed a big chunk of watermelon. And so that was pretty cool to do that time lapse. And it got a million views. So I think, yes, I'm striving for those hits because when they come, they're awesome. And man, it would be really cool if we could pick up some views there because certainly you're right. It is a product that's generated a lot of user-generated content and we've got a lot of that coming in, but it's we haven't cracked the nut on how to make that kind of go viral, if that makes sense. So we get a lot of people that are posting the product and them using it and the setup of it. And they've got kids and they've got really engaging stories, but they themselves don't have a million followers. They have a hundred followers or something. So it's like they show it, we repost it. It gets the 500 or so views that we get routinely, but we've just never, we've not gotten the, Hey, we get 50,000 views on every post we do. We wish that we did. And we post every day on multiple, I say we, Audrey posts, on multiple platforms every single day. Um, and we're, we just keep grinding on it and hoping that eventually we'll start getting thousands of views per day. But we're definitely over a year into it. And 
even daily posting or twice daily posting, we're really not seeing the view counts and stuff that we thought we would see. Content is a very difficult business. <laughs> that is that is a fact. As we're sitting here talking about this, I was thinking about maybe you've explored this route altogether, but I was wondering, you said that you've talked about influencers already. I'm wondering, do you know who Kevin Espiritu, I probably yeah. his last mm-hmm. name, Epic yeah, Gardening Guy? It was like, he was what came to mind thinking about this. And I was like, I wonder if you could send him one of those and see if he would, I don't know, try it out or something like that. And that would maybe be interesting. Yeah, Kevin's got an incredible business and he just raised a round of funding for a creator business. And that's just incredible, right? You start a media business around gardening. He started as a blog. Now he's been able to raise venture capital and cash out a little bit and take some money for himself, I imagine. And uh, he just bought a, a seed company and he's got the Epic Gardening Shop. Kevin is really... He's the leader among the gardening niche creators. And so, yeah, definitely love Kevin and would always welcome any sort of partnership with Kevin Spiritu, that's for sure. Turns out he's a listener of the show, so we'll pass that along. Okay, nice. I highly doubt that, but Kevin, if you're listening, seriously. Rob, yeah. this is this has been a really fun conversation. I appreciate your introspective views and learnings from yourself. I found myself several times listening to what you were saying. And I was like, man, that's very, you're very aware of what you have gone through and like the meaty takeaways of that. And I really appreciated that. What two final closing thoughts here? What can we, the listeners, do? to be useful to you? Oh, wow. To be useful to me? Yeah. I'm just going to, I'm going to go wide here and I'm going to say compost. Okay. Compost any way you can is Audrey's and I's motto, but 50% of our food supply ends up in landfills and gets basically it rots in plastic bags where it becomes the harmful greenhouse gas known as methane. So anything that you can do to compost and try to divert that food waste out of your garbage can. So that by either starting a worm composting bin like the worm bucket or by starting an outdoor compost or buying some other type of product that can help you compost. That would be how you can help me and help the greater world around us is help compost your trash. It's unbelievable how much like the methane that produces. I think that it's actually more than cars is like the trash and like food. Yeah, definitely. There are systems there that they're using to try to reclaim some of it for power and things like that. But at the end of the day, we're running out of room in our nation's landfills and composting is an individual action that we can all do that says... I want to do it to do something different. I want to take part in, in the help in the environment. Fantastic. And the last thing, what could we take away that we could implement in our lives today that learn from you and this conversation? Yeah, I think we talked a lot about blooming where you're planted and then also maybe a little bit about being realistic of where you are in life and what you can do at that moment in time. I think that's something, right? I would say, and I took this from Tim Ferriss, right? Shoot your shot, right? I I got the dominant or the deal with the Domino's founder for Jirene Burger. 
because I took my own money and I flew down to Florida and I met the guy, right? Other things that have happened throughout my life have come from me just putting my paw in the air and trying it, doing it. And so I think that's the biggest thing is one, just start no matter what it is. And then two, if you have setbacks, don't let those be life-defining setbacks, right? You got to like crawl your way to the next level, whatever that means. Some rungs, we may jump from one length, from one rung to the next. Others, we may have to fight tooth and nail to get to that next stage. But I think it's up to us to recognize, you know, where am I at? What do I have the ability to change? And things that are outside of your control, you have to just kind of let go of them, right? Like in my case, it's, I struggle because I, in my mind, I want to be a Zuckerberg or any of these people, Sam Parr or some of these folks in the podcast world. I want to be like them. But the truth is, I'm not them. I was born in a different life. I had different circumstances. I had different money. I had different opportunities. And I'm me. And I've got to take what I've got and I've got to figure out how to make it my own and not spend too much time focused on the envy of others and stuff like that. So that's what I would recommend. A takeaway from that is just run your own race and be proud of what you've accomplished and try not to spend too much time comparing yourself to others. That's very prudent advice. I, I definitely could implement a little bit of that in my own life as well. Rob, I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much today. All right. Thank you, Brock.